So it's called the Vedra Motivation. So it's very important as practitioners that we develop our own inner strength, our own determination. Of course, we depend on our teachers from now until full awakening, and especially at the beginning of our practice, and in the middle and in the end, we need to depend on our teachers. But we do that and at the same time develop our inner strength, our inner determination. And so these two are not contradictory. Now, by following <clears throat> the teachings, then we will develop our own relationship with the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And as we develop that personal relationship with them, then our own inner determination grows, and we won't be adversely affected by what other people do, what they say, what they think. This is very important to develop in our practice because we never know what kind of situation we'll find ourselves in. And we have to know that, you know, our refuge is rock solid. And that our refuge is in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So we have to know what they are, what the three jewels are. And our refuge should not be dependent on other people, even the religious institutions. Our refuges and our bodhicitta are dependent on our own understanding, our own inner thought and determination. So to generate our bodhicitta motivation, have that awareness that it's possible to attain full awakening and the determination to do so, no matter how long it takes, no matter the difficulties you might go through, that this is something valuable. In fact, it's the only thing that's valuable in the long term. And so have the enthusiasm and uh, mental stability to carry through with your practice from now until full awakening. So I think one thing that makes uh, this text very special, at least for me, is, uh, like I mentioned last time, that he speaks in the first person, and he's telling you exactly how he talks to himself, and how he talks to his own self-centered mind and his own ego grasping. And so it's giving us an uh, 
a, a window into how to think as bodhisattvas, how a bodhisattva thinks, okay? So it isn't him teaching us, it's him showing us by example what he's doing. And that makes it very, very valuable. And when, uh, then when you think of the difficulties that bodhisattvas go through, because when you read this text, he keeps calling himself out, doesn't he? He keeps calling out his self-centered mind, you know, and you can see starting to go self-centeredness. No, you know, you're not going to do that. This is how to do, okay? And, and so that's teaching us to learn to call out our own self-centered mind, okay, without thinking we're bad people, without thinking we're failures, but being able to be honest with ourselves and see this stuff and then apply the teachings and remedy it, okay? And that's what develops that inner strength and inner determination, okay? Because if we're always relying on other people to be inspired, if we're always relying on other people, uh, you know, to... Uh, tell us what to do, then if something happens to those other people, you know, when they die, if they make a big mistake, then we begin to practice our whole, doubt our whole practice. Yeah. And our practice should not be dependent upon the good behavior of somebody else. Okay. Our practice needs to be dependent on our own investigation of the teachings, our own seeing the validity of the teachings because we examine them with reasoning, we try them out, we see if they work with our own experience, and from that we have faith. Okay, So our faith isn't just, oh, you know, we have this great teacher and there's so much brocade and high thrones and bells and whistles and titles and hats. You know, because, I mean, all Buddhism has, you know, this stuff, but the Tibetans especially, yeah. And so if you rely on that to feel like, oh, this is a good spiritual practice, uh, then... But when all that goes away, yeah, you're left with, with, you know, nothing. So it's really important to, to practice on our own and develop that conviction on our own. Okay? And then, you know, thing, this happens, that happens, the other thing happens, uh, you're, you're, are stable and you are balanced. Okay. But without that, then, you know, like I saw when Lama Yeshi died, many people went into spiritual crisis. You know, it's like Lama's not there anymore. And what do I do? You know, who do I trust? Well, we trust the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Yeah. And our teacher helps to connect us 
so that we can make our own relationship with the three jewels. Okay? The teacher's the connecting point, but we have to uh, study and examine the teachings and practice them. And through that, yeah, then the faith becomes very stable. So this is, this is quite important because scandals happen and you have to be able to endure a scandal. Yeah, if your faith falls apart because there's a scandal, you know, then you're relying too much on the institution and too much on the appearance of other people in this life. And you need to really connect with your own refuge. That's why, uh, you know, like right before I ordained, and I've told you this story many times, uh, the translator of my teacher and the, the foremost nun uh, ran off. The translator was a monk. She was a nun, and they ran off and, you know, got married or whatever they did, okay? So this was right before I ordained, and I just went, you know, because they were people I looked up to. But looking back on the situation, it was very good that that happened because it made me see if this can happen to them, it can happen to me. And so I need to practice myself to transform my own mind so that my mind doesn't get hooked by attachment, you know. And it really taught me, you know, I have to focus on my practice and not rely on the good example of other people because things come out of left field. And you don't know what kind of karma is going to ripen or what's going to happen. Okay, samsara is very unpredictable. So I can't depend on the vagaries of samsara for my refuge. Yeah, I have to depend on my own practice. And, you know, that's going to come from learning the teachings, checking them out, you know, with reasoning, practicing them, and, you know, developing my own personal experience so that I know they work. And then that stays stable. Okay. Otherwise, we're just looking for everybody else to inspire us. And we're not connecting with the three jewels in our heart. We become inspiration addicts. Yeah. (laughs) You need to inspire me and you need to inspire me. But we need to inspire ourselves. Okay. And that's exactly what Shantideva is teaching us how to do. And it is a hard process. You know, to confront our, our, our own afflictions and our, especially our self-centered mind, it's not easy. Yeah. 
I mean, if this were easy, we would have been enlightened eons ago. Yeah. But just because it's hard, it doesn't mean you don't do it. Okay. In samsara, people go through all sorts of difficulties to get what, what they want samsarically. Yeah? I mean, people go through a lot in terms of getting an education, working at low jobs, you know, all sorts of pain and suffering just, just to get samsaric stuff. And we're not aiming for some stark stuff. So it's going to be even, you know, more challenging and require, you know, enthusiastic perseverance and, and determination. But it's the one thing that's going to be stable in our lives, not just this life, but all of our lives in the future. Okay? And it's the one thing that we can count on to know that we're going in a good direction. So we have to develop that ourselves. Mm -hmm. And problems will come. We're in samsara. Yeah? If, If you expect that first I have to get the perfect situation, then I will practice the dharma then you're never going to practice because when are you going to get the perfect situation in samsara? You never have it. Okay. So practicing with whatever we're dealt with in samsara, that is the dharma practice. The dharma practice isn't getting all of our samsaric stuff in order and then we go do something holy. It's confronting our own samsara, that's what dharma practice is. It's working with our own mind. Okay? So we have to be very clear on this kind of thing. And we will make mistakes, and the people around us will make mistakes. We are in samsara. Don't expect your samsara to be perfect. Okay? And working with what comes up, that is how we develop strength. Okay? And that's what Shantideva is telling us how to do. Yeah? And he's telling us right in this chapter, like from the very beginning things, like when you want to you know, shout at somebody and tell them off because they looked at you cross-eyed, you hold your mouth and you try and make your internally to be like a piece of wood because a piece of wood does not spout their anger all over other people. Okay? So, I mean, this is like a day-to-day occurrence, isn't it? We get mad all the time. And he's saying, okay, this is how to practice on a daily basis. And you've got to learn to do this. Okay? And, you know, all sorts of stuff he's telling us that are really practical. I mean, in the upcoming verses, he's going to tell us how to eat, you know, and how to sit. 
and what to do with your toothbrush, at least if you're using one of the old Indian toothbrushes. He's going to tell us all this kind of stuff, how to be considerate to other people, stuff that our parents taught us that we still don't know how to practice properly. Okay? So, you know, we have to thank him and we have to start with, you know, doing the symbol stuff, which is already hard enough because it's going against our own attachment. And up until now, our attachment has ruled our lives. And I want what I want when I want it. Yeah, and that's been our mantra our whole lives. And so beginning to do something about that is, you know, it's harder than pulling teeth. Okay. So, verse 85. Yeah. That's where we were. Well, let's review verse 84. When all of this is understood, what he's taught us before about cherishing others and not paying so much attention to our own body, not pampering the body. When this is well understood, I should always strive for the welfare of others. The far-seeing merciful ones have allowed a bodhisattva to do some actions that for others were forbidden. So there I gave the example that often comes up in the scriptures about the captain of the ship and so on. And, you know, unless you are willing to, um, unless your compassion is so strong that you're willing to go to the hell realms uh, to stop somebody else from, you know, harming others, then you don't do that, okay? So we don't use that story to rationalize our own anger, okay? That clear? Do you remember the story? And, yeah, okay. Because otherwise, we would justify it and we would go around killing everybody (laughs) we didn't like. (laughs) Yeah, and that certainly not the way to attain enlightenment, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. Okay, then 85 says, I should divide my food amongst those who have fallen to lower realms, those without protection and practitioners, and eat merely what is sufficient for myself, except for the three robes I may give away all. So here he's talking about the practice of generosity. Okay, so divide our food amongst me, I, my, and mine. Okay, Uh, oh, no, that's not what he says here. Okay, okay, I divide my food among those who have fallen to the lower realms, okay? Animals, hungry ghosts, hell beings, you know, we take care of of the various animals, around us. It's very hot outside now. You know, I'm wondering if we should uh, put out something for the deer, some water for the deer, but also I don't want the bugs to drown in the water. So it's 
it's difficult, but we do have a pond down the hill, so hopefully they will go down there. Um, you know, and if we feed the animals, we feed them away from the building. Okay, let's not invite the bears to uh, help us clean out our, our trash bags. Um, yeah. So we divide our food among amongst those who have fallen to the lower realms, those without protection, so people who are impoverished. Yeah, so we, uh, you know, when we receive extra food, you know, or, or like a whole lot of, us, you know, different kinds of things, then we take it to the food bank. Yeah, it's very important that, because that, uh, our county is poor, yeah, this is not a wealthy county, so it's very important that we support the people here, okay? And we make donations to, uh, you know, Feeding America, to, you know, the Tibetan nuns, to different charities, um, you know, because that's important to share the wealth. And practitioners, okay, so like the, the there the t Tibetan nuns come come into. Okay, so we share what we have. We don't just keep it all for ourselves. And we eat merely what is sufficient for ourselves. Okay, so we should eat well, keep our body nourished, keep our body healthy, keep our body at a proper weight, not too thin, not too fat. And, uh, and you know, then we, ca we will be healthy and able to practice, yeah? If we're too thin or we're too heavy, then difficult to practice, you know? It affects our health. Um, okay, and then except for our three robes, so he's talking to monastics here, I may give away all. So we can't give away our three robes, our shemdab, yeah, our uh, chugu and our namjar. Yeah, our zen is an added robe that the Tibetans added. Yeah, and the donka is as well. So we can give those away. If we have extra shemdaps, extra namjars, extra chugus, then we can also give those away. Yeah, uh, you know, there's the right, especially for shemdaps, of sharing your shemdak, shemdak, um, yeah. But otherwise, we, the chugus and namjars we don't wear so often that we need to have duplicates of them. Okay. Unless you, uh, you know, um, I because I go uh, to Taiwan to participate. In the, in the ordination, then I have the Chinese robes, okay. Actually, I, I want to have a new set made in cotton instead of hot nylon. <sighs> yeah, I actually borrowed yours for the last time I went. Yeah. Okay, but we can give away everything. But, you know, so it's very good to share. But we should not put ourselves in a, a, sti a state where it's going to affect our health. 
okay, because then that affects our ability to practice. <clears throat> then 86, this body, which is being used for the sacred dharma, should not be harmed for only slight benefit. By behaving in this way, the wishes of all beings will be quickly fulfilled. Okay, so before, earlier in the chapter, there's a great discussion about, you know, not pampering the body, not, you know, just trying to beautify it, not spoiling it, not being obsessed with, uh, you know, what's going on with our body, uh, but keeping it healthy, keeping it clean, and using it for the Dharma. Okay, So on one hand, we don't pamper the body, but on the other hand, we don't go to the other extreme and do ascetic practices. And so in the Buddha's life, that's what he showed us. You know, he started out as a prince with all the, you know, stuff. And then he saw that that wasn't the way to follow a spiritual practice. He gave that up. Later on, he did ascetic practices for six years, and he got so thin that when he touched his belly button, he could feel his spine. And then he realized that doesn't tame the mind either. Okay? And so he, uh, you know, left his five friends and had some porridge, and his five friends are calling him names and saying, you're a big cop-out, and you're a flake, and you're, you know, this and that. Uh, but he ate, he crossed the river, he went and sat under the Bodhi tree, and that's when he became enlightened. Okay, so we have to take care of our body and not do some kind of ascetic trip. Yeah? But we have to not pamper the body either. Okay, so some kind of middle way, which is really difficult, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> So uh, aim for that, and we always have to adjust it. So we don't harm the body for only a slight benefit. Yeah, so we may read the story of the Buddha giving his body to the mother tigress uh, so that she can then feed her cubs, and we may think, oh, okay, I'm going to go out and find a tiger and give my body, and, you know, because I want to practice just like the Buddha. Yeah, well, you give your body, that's, that's fine. But if you don't have the spiritual realizations to control your rebirth and some negative karma uh, ripens at the time of your rebirth, then actually you're going to be further away from awakening because you fall to the lower realms, and it's difficult to get out of the lower realms once you fall to them. Okay? So we don't uh, sacrifice the body if we don't have the realizations to, uh, to maintain uh, a solid Dhamma practice after that uh, because... You know, that's why he says, by behaving in this way, the wishes of all beings will be quickly fulfilled. Because if we're able to maintain a human body and use it to practice the Dharma and, you know, hopefully to gain realizations, but if we don't gain realizations this life, we plant a lot of good seeds in our mind, we do a lot of purification, we create a lot of merit, we can get a good rebirth 
next lifetime, the next lifetime we can continue to practice, and then we just keep getting good rebirths until we finally attain full awakening. Okay, and and our full awakening is what fulfills the wishes of all beings because as we're as we get realizations along the bodhisattva path and at full Buddhahood, then we're able to manifest many bodies and you know go out and really work for the benefit of sentient beings. And then we'll also have the uh, the powers, the supernormal powers, to see what other sentient beings' karma is, to know exactly what advice to give them. Because now we want to help others, but often our advice is sometimes not so good. Yeah, so we need those kind of supernormal powers so that we can really assess what are people's interests, what what kind of Dharma teaching do they need at this moment, what advice to give them. Yeah, and... Uh, so in order to gain that ability, we need to practice well. So we need to have an upper rebirth, which means this lifetime's we, lifetime, we need to, as much as possible, keep our body healthy and live long so that we can practice. Okay. So, uh, you know, now... So somebody may need a kidney or something, you know, while you're alive, if you have the confidence, uh, you know, and the surgery is safe, you want to give your kidney, that's fine. Then you can, it's possible to survive on one kidney, um, you know, but we should check out the situation and really uh, make sure that mentally and physically we're fit if we're going to do that. At the time of death with organ donation, some people may want to do that, some people may not, okay? Because at the time when you die, they harvest the organs uh, as soon as possible, and your consciousness may not have left at the time when they harvest the organs, and that could adversely affect your rebirth. So some people may choose not to give their organs when they die. Other people may say, I, but I do want to give my organs when I die. And so that's a personal choice, and that's completely fine to do according to your own personal preference. Okay, there isn't a standard procedure for that. <clears throat> okay. Then verse 87 those who lack the pure intention of compassion should not give their body away. Instead, both in this and future lives, they should give it to, to the cause of fulfilling the great purpose. So the great purpose is full awakening. Okay? So if we lack the pure intention of compassion, yeah, so if we may have compassion one moment, but the next moment we don't have it. Our compassion is not stable. If our compassion is not stable, okay, and like I said before, if we don't have the ability to control our rebirth, then probably not good to give our body away. Yeah. So there's some debate about this. The way I learned it 
was, you know, path of seeing. Uh, is, you know, when you attain path of seeing, then you can give your body away because that's, uh, you know, that's the time when you have that mental power to control the rebirth. Other people have learned it saying path of preparation. Okay. So there's different ideas about it, so you need to check up yourself. Okay. But uh, our, our focus should remain on uh, what is going to enable us to become fully awakened according to our present abilities in the uh, you know most expedient way possible? Okay, that clear to people? Yeah. So we don't want to get fanciful ideas of you know I'm going to save the world when when we. Uh, are not equipped to do that, <laughs> and when nobody can save the world, okay, it's not dependent on external things. External things help, yeah, so we need to be socially active, and we need to change things in the society, but we need to change our minds too in order to make societal change stable and effective. Okay, 89. Nor to a woman unaccompanied by a man. Now remember, he's talking to monks here. Okay. What? Oh, I've, yeah, I skipped a. Yeah. Okay, 88. Okay, the Dharma should not be explained to those who lack respect, to those who, like the sick, wear cloth around their heads to those holding umbrellas, sticks, or weapons, to those with covered heads. Okay, and then it goes on, nor to a woman unaccompanied by a man. The vast, okay, yeah, the vast and profound should not be taught to lesser beings, although I should always pay equal respect to the dharmas of the lesser and higher beings. So this is about who to teach and who not to teach. Okay, so people who lack respect. Yeah, so this is people who are trying to convert you, who have, uh, or people who just have disdain for the Dharma. Uh, they're not open-minded. They don't really want to have interreligious dialogue or learn what you're saying. They want to Either they're cynical and they want to either, uh, uh, you know, change your mind or uh, they're hooked into their own faith and want to convert you, okay? So people who, who lack respect, who are not open-minded, it's useless, yeah, to engage in a discussion with them because uh, it, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. So with them, it's better to establish a friendly relationship and then hopefully on the basis of friendship, then later if their mind becomes more flexible, then they might be open to the Dharma. Okay. But if somebody is not open to the Dharma, uh, you know, it, it really doesn't do much good. Okay. Um, but 
sometimes you're, you can be very surprised by who is interested and who actually, you know, the, you can tell the difference between uh, people who question and people who uh, pontificate. <laughs> okay? <laughs> the people who are pontificating their own religion. Uh, but I, I must say, you know, I've had discussions with people on planes and what I've learned uh, with people who try and convert me on planes is I, uh, uh, you know, I'm not trying to convert them, but I'm try I try to get them to see that they need to be polite and respectful. Okay, so one time I was sitting next to one young man who was trying to convert me. And um, he was telling me about how his, he doesn't get along with his parents anymore because he became a born-again Christian. And I can understand why, he, you know, after talking to him, why his relationship with his family has degenerated. Um, but he wanted to give me information. And I said, uh, I will accept it if, I, if you will read uh, some Buddhist material. You know, it has to be a fair exchange here. And he got very quiet and he said, I can't do that. So I said, then I'm sorry, I cannot accept your material either. Yeah. I sat next to another man who, and, and this is how the, the, the conversation usually is with people is we have so much love and compassion for you that we want you to save you from going to the hell realm after you die. And the one way to do that is for you to accept Jesus as your savior. And I'm going to help you to do that. Okay. So there was a man who, you know, this was what he was saying to me. And, you know, I told him I'm, I'm a Buddhist. And he said, you know, you're going to hell. That's really polite, isn't it? You know, I, it's something that really puzzles me because, you know, my sister-in-law, her father had just died. And her neighbors, who were born-again Christians, say, we're so sorry that your, your father's going to go to hell. I mean, that's so uncompassionate. But they think they're acting in the name of compassion. Anyway, don't be fooled by that stuff, yeah? So he was saying this to me, and I said, you know, I, I, uh, I don't kill, I don't steal, I'm celibate, I don't lie, I don't drink, you know? Uh, I'm, I'm keeping the basic morality that uh, you know your spiritual tradition practices. Why would God send me to hell if I'm following those kind of precepts and if I'm trying to be kind and compassionate and forgiving to other people? I'm following the instructions that that you say are are you know the way to live. Uh, why? Would I be punished for that? <laughs> yeah. And I, I kept saying that, you know. 
And I said, you tell me you have compassion for me. Well, I have compassion for you too. Yeah? And part of compassion is to respect each other. And so I think if, you know, I, because I've learned through a lot of experience, and I said, you know, if you really want to follow what God and Jesus taught, then you have to respect other living beings, and especially people who are trying to, to live according to the same precepts that you live by. Yeah, and not judge them. And, yeah, I think that got through because when we were deplaning, he said, oh, maybe I pushed a bit too hard. <laughs> or something, maybe he didn't say push, but maybe I spoke too, too much or whatever. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I don't debate with people anymore or try to teach them the Dharma, yeah. I try to pick out things in their own religion and encourage them to practice that. So in the early days of the Abbey, I remember some Jehovah's Witnesses came to our front door. I mean, they, they, all the way up here. And, you know, we have some good news for you. And, and I said, I didn't invite them in because I know the story. I said, thank you very much. We're a Buddhist community. I think if you practice love and compassion and forgiveness and non-harmfulness, that you will have a very happy life and you will benefit others. And those are the same things that we're practicing here. So I wish you well in your practice. Thank you. Goodbye. Yeah? So I was polite. I was respectful, but I wasn't going to start a dialogue because it wasn't going to go anywhere. And I didn't feel obliged to invite them in, you know. So, um, yeah, but, and they, they were actually very happy with what I said. You know, I said that, they smiled, because I was acknowledging that their, you know, ethical conduct was good and that they were trying to develop compassion for others. And so they felt pleased by that. And I do respect that. You know? And I'm not going to try and make them into Buddhists, you know, because different people have different karma and different dispositions and different interests. And the important thing is that people find a spiritual tradition that connects with their hearts and that they practice that. They don't have to be Buddhist, you know. And so for those people who feel, you know, everybody was created in God's image, then yes, be respectful to other people. Don't kill them. Don't be prejudiced against them. Yeah, if, every, if God created all these people, then please respect everybody no matter what political beliefs they have, no matter what sexual orientation they are, no matter, you know, what color their skin. Huh? Respect everybody. And so you encourage them in, in what they already believe. And, and that's very helpful. Yeah? 
And then with some people who are really open-minded, you know, like with our Catholic sisters, then we can really talk more freely because they want to know exactly what our practice is and how we practice. And we're quite curious in how they practice and how they deal with things too. Yeah. And so then you can have a real dialogue. Yeah. And, and that's very valuable. Yeah. Years ago, when I was in Germany, I got invited for an interfaith dialogue, and the pastor, um, she then invited me for a mass, and um, she gave a talk, and in that talk, she said that, um, you know, the church in Europe is losing its members, and um, she compared that with um, losing your child. So they're mm -hmm. leaving home. <laughs> and um, that they're going through a kind of grieving process. And I was um, astonished by her insight that she is not just putting um, the scripture in front of her and arguing with, the, with some kind of text, but also looking into her mind and seeing that she personally feels sad because she doesn't understand. And um, there's a big need of connection, but um, so not recognizing really um, how to how to connect when others make different decisions, how, how to connect with the child that leaves the house. Yeah. And so I really, I could not communicate further with her. I could not really, um, I wonder how to um, connect with people when they're going through that process, when they actually have fear that their face is um, um, in decline or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, then I think again, just encourage them to keep practicing themselves because the more they practice themselves um, then the more they can be open with other people and inspire other people by their own example. So don't explain the Dharma to those who lack respect. To those who like the sick wear a cloth around their heads. So in ancient India some people wore turbans or cloths around their head that was considered disrespectful. It's quite interesting. In some religions, you cover your head before you do something spiritual. In other religions, you take off anything that was on your head in order to be respectful. It's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? You know, And similarly, in different religions, how to dispose of like worn out religious texts, the, the Buddhists burn them, the Muslims put them under the, they bury them. In Buddhism, if you bury a text, it's considered very, you know, negative karma. For the Muslims, if you burn one of their texts, they don't like that. They say that's, you know, not respectful. So it's quite interesting that everybody has the same idea, you know, how do we respect texts, or how do we uh, do, you know, what clothes do we wear, how do we sit? Everybody has an idea of how to be respectful in that way, but their ideas are different. Yeah? So uh, sometimes when I would give Dharma talks to Tushita, we would get Westerners coming, and, you know, they wore all sorts of stuff. And, you know, or they wore very little stuff. And, 
and they just didn't know. So you start the course, you know, uh, teaching them a little bit, and then you, you know, kind of introduce respectful ways of, of, of dressing and sitting and so on. Here, at least, we put it on our website, yeah, and, uh, you know, we have things about how to dress on the website, so that's good. I mean, if somebody shows up here and they're in short shorts and, you know, down to here, or the guys walk in with no shirts at all, then, then we have to loan them some clothes. Okay, <laughs> um, not robes, but uh, you know something else. Okay, so just basically, uh, you know, people have to learn, and it's a pro it's a cultural thing that you know we have to go through to learn how to dress and act respectfully according to the environment that we're in and the people we're around. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so even when we're with other Buddhists, when, when we go to Taiwan, we wear something with sleeves. Yeah, because that's, you know, what is considered polite um, and respectful dress for monastics there. Of course, we have an etiquette code here at the Abbey, but online we found that we needed to extend a little more information about how to participate in a Dharma teaching. And so with the Exploring Buddhism course, we uh, sent them a, a very short, but, you know, how to how to dress appropriately, appropriately how, how to sit and listen and not run for a cup of tea and lounge and those sorts of things. Yes, that's good. And I think when we do Zoom things, it's good to send that out to all the participants, not just the exploring Buddhism, but everybody on the on the uh, online courses, because also it's very distracting when you're teaching and you want to see the audience on Zoom, and they're getting up and down and walking and reading and checking their phone, and it's very distracting. So to tell them how to listen, yeah. That doesn't mean they, they do it, but we try. Yeah. Okay, to those holding umbrellas. So in ancient India, I'm not umbrellas usually, you know, like the Dharma umbrellas, maybe it's only the wealthy people who use umbrellas. I'm not sure exactly how that is, that but that might be the case. People holding sticks or weapons. Yeah. Clearly, if they come for Dharma teachings, <laughs> they have to, you know, go down the hill, leave their gun at home, and then come back, okay? Um, of course, if you're in a difficult situation and a person has a weapon, then you try and talk Dharma to them without using Buddhist words to calm them down so that they don't hurt somebody with a, a weapon, okay? But that's a situation in which, you know, a situation you wish you weren't in, but you're with, there's danger around, okay? But if somebody comes for teachings, then, uh, you know, certainly no weapons, and that's also on the, the uh, website. And those with covered heads, okay? So again, in Buddhism, you take off your hats, 
and uh, when you listen to the Dharma. Okay. And then, nor to a woman unaccompanied by a man. So, again, he's talking to monks here. So that makes total sense. Yeah. Um, you know, as nuns, generally, you wouldn't teach a man uh, privately, you know, in an enclosed place without somebody else being present. So, but if you're, you know, out in a public place and somebody asks you a Dharma question, yeah, and other people, you know, walk, can walk by, they can see you, then certainly you can answer their question or whatever. Okay, so this is talking about situations where you don't want to uh, either put yourself in danger or cause gossip among other people. Okay. Or, you know, you never know. Sometimes people might be attracted to you and, you know, you want to relate to them in a Dharma way, but they want to relate to you in another way. So you have to be sensitive to that too. And if some, you know, you sense somebody is attracted to you that way, then you wouldn't teach them privately or, you know, alone in any kind of way. Because that is not very helpful to people uh, to encourage that kind of mind in them. And sometimes it's happened here. People have come here and you can see they're attracted to somebody. And we've had to intercede and say something to, to that person. Yeah. Okay, the vast and profound should not be taught to lesser beings. Um, so people who's, who do not, ha- who are not interested in the bodhisattva practice, yeah, who uh, are are not interested in Buddhism, you know, then we don't teach them. Uh, emptiness. We don't teach them bodhicitta because it's it's not um, it's not going to help them. Okay, we have one of our bodhi our bodhisattva precepts is not to teach emptiness to people who are unprepared, because it would be very in, uh, easy for them to misunderstand it and fall to a nihilistic attitude. They mistake emptiness for uh, and think, oh, nothing exists. And that's very, very damaging to them. So we certainly don't teach the profound to people who are not at all prepared for it. Okay, And you wouldn't teach uh, a bodhicitta to somebody who's not interested in it either. You could talk about how bodhicitta inspires you. You could share your own experience and say, you know, I, I have heard these teachings and I find them very valuable and I respect them and so on. Okay, But you wouldn't encourage them and teach them the bodhisattva practice if they were people who, um, you know, were not interested. When I was at the monastery in Thailand, it was quite interesting. Um, the The master there was very respectful of my practice, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and he had some bodhisattva inclinations himself. 
because he went to Potoshan and had, you know, a very deep experience and he wanted to uh, make a, like a small temple for Kuan Yin at his place. He gave me some uh, copper um, plates to take to his holiness for his holiness to bless. And then I brought them back and then they, that would get used to when they uh, were making a statue of Kuan Yin. Or, you know, so he had something. His disciples were not as flexible as him, okay? And, uh, and so I snuck in Bodhicitta wherever I could, uh, but I, I, I tried to do it tactfully because I was a guest at their monastery. I didn't want to get everybody inflamed about something. Um, you know, there was one monk in particular who was a bit difficult. Um, and there was another monk who himself had come to retreats that I led and who practices Vajrayana. So, you know, you have a variety of people. So I, I spoke about what was appropriate to each one. Yeah. Uh, so I had to do it individually <laughs> because this one of them, oh, he just didn't, anyway, I don't need to say that. But um, yeah, he was just not ready to hear anything about Mahayana. So I didn't trouble him with that. Okay. So we don't, we teach what is appropriate to people, you know, that will help them that will validate the good things they're doing and then encourage them to do more and to maybe stretch their minds and open their minds a little bit more. Yeah, but we don't push anything on people. Yeah. When the Mennonite church had an open house some years ago, we went and uh, yeah, I've always respected the Mennonites because of their their uh, ahimsa, you know, the, the pacifist tradition. So I was talking to the minister's wife, and she said, do you people believe in God? You know, so what am I going to say? Hell no. <laughs> it's like, that's not going to help anybody. Um, you know, so I said, well, it depends I said, um, I talked about our ethical code, okay? And I said, you know, if by, if by God you mean love and compassion and kindness and forgiveness to others, yes, we definitely practice that. And we, you know, here's our ethical code. And, you know, I kind of laid that out for her. And she was very happy with that, you know? I didn't need to say anything about God or Jesus or anything else like that, but just say the basic things that we do. And she smiled. She was quite pleased, you know, because what's important is to create that connection with other people. And if you look at what His Holiness does, yeah, he'll go to Hindu things and, you know, they'll mark him you know, and put things on him. He's fine with that. He went to Jerusalem. 
he went to the wailing wall and he put on a yarmulke. You know, and all of his Jewish students are going, oh my God, look at that. <laughs> you know, his holiness with a yarmulke at the wailing wall. Um, and, you know, because his holiness, you know, he relates to people at a heart level, not at a, a doctrinal level. Yeah, Not at a, you know, a theological level, but at a heart level. And, you know, so he, he does all of that, and it's fine. He has no problem uh, with anybody else in that way. Okay, uh, so the vast and profound should not be taught to lesser beings, people who aren't prepared for it, although I should always pay equal respect to the dharma of the lesser and higher beings. Okay, so within Buddhism, whether people are practicing the fundamental vehicle, the general Mahayana, whatever they're practicing, you know, we encourage them in that. We, if they have some views that are quite limited, we don't encourage those limited views. But, you know, you, there's never fault in, in encouraging ethical conduct and kindness and compassion. You know, because those are universal values uh, that are really important. And His Holiness says, whatever theology gets you to respect, to the point of wanting to, to behave properly and be kind to others, then that's good, you know. It, the theology isn't what's important, it's, it's what's in your heart. Okay, so we respect other people, but we don't encourage ideas that are incorrect. Okay. And then I should not communicate the dharma of a lesser being to one who is a vessel for the vast dharma. So for people who have the, um, the Mahayana disposition, yeah, we don't teach them just the fundamental vehicle. We can teach them the fundamental vehicle because the Mahayana is based on the fundamental vehicle. But we don't teach just that. Or as they say, you can teach everything except you don't em uh, emphasize uh, striving for your own liberation. Yeah, But all the other teachings are exactly, you know, they're what we practice too. And uh, this is what was really has been really wonderful for me in, in working on the Library of Wisdom and Compassion, is learning more about the fundamental vehicle and the Theravada teachings and really uh, respecting them, you know. And at the same time, you know, not aspiring for my liberation alone because, you know, to me, without bodhicitta, then, you know, your life just becomes meaningless. You know, you have to, it's like, the, yeah, there's nothing better than bodhicitta. So, not even ice cream, not even chocolate. Okay? So, um, so we teach, the whole point here in all these things is we teach people according to where, what their tendencies are, okay? 
So for people who aren't inclined towards Mahayana, we don't push that. For people who are inclined towards Mahayana, we don't teach just work for your own liberation. Okay. Uh, so I should not communicate the Dharma of lesser beings to one who is a vessel for the vast Dharma. I must not forsake the Bodhisattva's way of life, nor lead others by mislead others by means of sutras or mantras. So for our own self, we never forsake the Bodhisattva's deeds. Okay, so uh, you know you may stay at a Theravada place for for a while. You know, in in our tantric precepts, they say not more than a week. But you don't go to a Theravada monastery and say, well, Tantra says I can't stay here more than a week because you are the lesser vehicle. I mean, come on. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, and I say that because sometimes people get really fundamentalist about different things and are incredibly rude in my, in my view. Okay? Um, so the, the the thing is, you don't want to, and we have bodhisattva precepts. Not the bodhisattva precept is not to prefer the fundamental vehicle, or even non-Buddhist teachings more than what you already practice. It doesn't mean that you can't listen to them. It means that if you see your mind is inclining towards them, and you're inclining towards either giving up Buddhism or giving up bodhicitta, then you instantly pull yourself back from that. Okay. So I will not forsake the bodhisattva's way of life. And we won't use the bodhisattva's way of life or tantra uh, to mislead others by means of sutras or mantras. You know, by giving you know, like all sorts of, how to say, um, yeah, by, by giving the wrong impression of the Mahayana or giving the wrong impression of uh, Vajrayana, you know, because it can be very disturbing to people. And, you know, people also who, um, some people, they've, They've been exposed to, to, for example, Tibetans who don't keep their precepts very well, Tibetan monastics who don't keep their precepts well. And then they say Vajrayana isn't Buddhism and we don't want to go anywhere near it and da-da-da-da-da. And so those people, we certainly wouldn't teach about Vajrayana. People have asked me questions about it and I will answer the questions and I will frankly say, you know, some people do not, you know, some Tibetan monastics do not behave properly. And if those are the ones that you've seen or you've heard about, please understand that is they are not following the teachings properly. Yeah, but don't, you know, be prejudiced against Vajrayana or Mahayana in general because of the bad behavior of a few people. And then I will explain, you know, because what they hear is, oh, Vajrayana people have sex and drink, and they think that's the path to enlightenment. You know, 
So then you have to explain for high practitioners on the completion stage, da 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 da, who have these qualifications, and you list the qualifications, which are very, very high, you know. And then you say that even His Holiness Dalai Lama says just a few people who are alive now can do this. And he anybody uh, that he thinks is ready, he tells them to disrobe first. Yeah, so you, you explain that. Yeah, because I asked His Holiness about, about that, and he said, you know, I, you know, we were like, how many people can do that? And he said, you know, it's like less than what's in my, you know, my fingers. So, and, uh, you know, and this is unfortunately what some people uh, hear and see, or they confuse Hindu Tantra with, with Buddhist Tantra. And while there are some similarities, there's a whole bunch of differences. And, you know, so you need to be able to explain the differences and, and so on. So you have to satisfy, you have to speak in a way that cures their wrong conceptions, okay, without talking too much about completion stage practices. Yeah. So to, to just... Yeah, say, people who are very highly realized, there are certain uh, exceptions made that have to do with dealing with the chi in the body, but there's very few people who are qualified to do that, and so here's the code of conduct for the rest of us, you know? And so this is how we practice. And, you know, this is... Uh, it's really sad when, we're, when we have to be the ex people who explain other people's bad behavior. Yeah, when people come and say, why, you know, and then, I have no idea why people act like this. This is what our precepts say. This is what qualifications are. You know, not everybody practices like these few people, so you stay away from them, but there are many people who are reliable teachers. But it is a problem, you know, and uh, Venerable Buyan, for example, you know, in, in discussing uh, this whole thing of, of giving bhikshuni ordination, she is very hesitant, you know, to, to work with Tibetan monastics, with, with Tibetan monks, with the nuns, with us, she's very happy. But with the monks, you know, because of all these wrong ideas about Vajrayana that are in uh, Taiwan. And I have people, I mean, for years, people write me. I'm kind of the go-to person when you don't understand when why somebody's doing what the naughty things they're doing, you know. And people ask me, why are they doing that? And so if people ask, I say, I don't know. I don't know why they're doing that. Ask them, because I have the same question. This is not how we're supposed to practice. So I cannot explain why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. So you don't talk bad about the person, but you can specify, 
you know, these are actions that are in accord and these actions aren't. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Something I really dislike. But you have to do it for the benefit of Dharma to explain something about, you know, what the right Tibetan practice is. I have a question about a situation that came up in a monastic gathering um, of different people from different traditions where someone, you know, very kindly and generously offered a, a, a deity practice and chant mantra, really, that's all it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I heard afterwards that one of the Theravada nuns was really quite taken aback, like, this is Buddhism. So it just made me wonder about how even in those kinds of circumstances, mm-hmm. how freely to offer uh, that I, sort of practice. Yeah, I, I mean, to, to chant a mantra, I don't think there's an if you... Visualizing light going out, and it, it wasn't super detailed, but... Yeah, what you could preface it with, because you were invited to do it, that person who came knows that they're going to hear something from another tradition. They're told beforehand, and they're also told that this is in the spirit of intra-Buddhist respect. So they know what they're, they're getting into. Yeah, so if it's just, you know, a simple visualization and chanting Omani Pemi Hong, fine. You certainly wouldn't do anything with highest class Tantra or self-generation or anything like that. Yeah. But, you know, chanting, all the traditions chant. <laughs> you know? And if you, uh, you know, I would probably tend to you know, tell people, visualize the Buddha, because the Buddha is common to all the Buddhist traditions. So visualize the Buddha, and we're going to chant the Buddha's mantra. I don't think that would push anybody's buttons. But as soon as you start talking about multiple heads and arms and different colors, uh, you know, people may say, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. But if somebody's told beforehand, they, they know what they're getting into. What should lay practitioners be careful about when doing different practices from the different vehicles, mixing Theravada, Mahayana, and Vajrayana? Okay. Um, it, if you, I don't know the context in which the person is asking, because just going to a teaching one time or in the space of interfaith uh, camaraderie, it's one thing. But in your own personal practice, if you're going to multiple teachings and and hearing uh, teachings from all the different vehicles, you know, in that situation, then you have to know the the, uh, general Buddhist teachings and if you have a, a heart, you know, of, of uh, Mahayana, then you have to make sure that you keep your bodhicitta. If you've taken Vajrayana empowerment and you have commitments, then you must still keep those, although you can go to teachings from other, thi- other vehicles. 
what you want to make sure of is that you don't kind of get super confused and, and, and that you maintain clarity in your own mind about how, uh, how the vehicles fit together and that they all go back to the Buddha. Okay? But it sounds like this person's asking a question of involving their own personal practice, which I can't answer if I don't really know the circumstance in which they're asking it. So I just gave some general advice there. Um, I remember you tried to establish a monastery together with one in the Theravada, and I also know a nunnery where there's a Theravada nun and now living there since a couple of years already. So, but then according to our bodies of the precepts, we should not um, stay longer with. Uh, that's uh, that's according to tantra precepts. Yeah, yeah. Not bodhisattva yeah, yeah, yeah. precepts. Yeah, right. And it's staying at a monastery. Mm-hmm. And and with somebody who is going to try and get you to practice their vehicle. Mm-hmm. If somebody's respectful of the Mahayana and they join in your practice, you know, and there's no disharmony, then there's no problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if somebody is saying, oh, Mahayana, that's not even the teachings of the Buddha, then you don't want to stay a long term time with that person because that will... In, you know, or that community, because that could adversely influence your mind. Okay? But, um, you know, if they're the only Buddhists around and you're living in communist China or some communist state, then, you know, that, that's a whole different situation. Okay? Um, yeah? And I know. Really, I never heard about Hindu Tantra. I don't know. Um, maybe I can look it up myself, but if you can say something to that, maybe. Yeah, I don't know a lot about Hindu Tantra either. But, you know, they, they, some of them do talk about sex and alcohol. But just, you know, that's not the Buddhist practice. Um, they do different exercises with the, the winds and channels and drops that can be similar to Buddhist Tantra, but the goal is very, very different, okay? Because the goal in Buddhism, well, first of all, the refuge objects are different. So we have refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Our goal is full awakening, Okay. In the Hindu Tantras, I, I don't really know much about them, but it's done without refuge, uh, probably without an understanding of emptiness or without bodhicitta, which are things that are very important to do to practice Buddhist Tantra. Okay? If somebody, somebody says, Gee, you know, are you a Tantra practitioner? You know, and they're like, are you having sex and drinking? It's like, Yes, I do very, you know, basic tantric practices, which are based on the Mahayana, which are based on the te- the four truths. We practice the four truths. We practice ethical conduct. We practice concentration. We practice wisdom, you know. And then in addition to all of them, you know, bodhicitta. And then in addition, I do some tantric practice, but it has its own set of of, uh, you know, I keep the basic Buddhist morality. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what's important. Yeah. 
You don't say, oh, yeah, I practice, you know, this and that. One time when I lived in, in France, we were friends with some Catholic nuns, and we went to visit them. And one time they came to visit us, and one of the newly ordained nuns on our side, uh, she, she set up her altar very nice because we were going to show everybody her. And she had a picture of Vajrayogini on her altar. Well, that kind of freaked the Catholic nuns out. So, you know, when you're having, inviting guests over, then, you know, you don't do that. And you'll notice around here, we do not have any tankas of couples in public display, you know, because when they talk about Tantra being a private practice, I think it's good. And because to, to not, you know, because we have all sorts of people coming to see us. And, and you know, we don't want to give them the wrong idea. So we don't have any of that on display at all. Okay? Yeah, we don't have wrathful figures on display either because people, you know, they get freaked out by that as well. So all that, I think, better. We just, you know, if you do that practice, you take it out. When you do the practice, you put it away afterwards. 